today I want you to turn to the book of Acts, and um, this Sunday and next Sunday are going to be kind of bridge Sundays, and we're going to transition into another series that we're going to be doing this next year. And Kevin's going to officially start through the book of Acts next week, and so I thought, let me take uh, just a second or two of your time today and talk about just the overview of the book of Acts. And so that's what I want to do, and uh, let me pray and we will dive in. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for this Christmas season that we have just celebrated, and I pray that the hope that we have because of this baby in the manger can be evident in our lives, that we continue to allow the Spirit um, to display that hope through us everywhere we go. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here's how the book of Acts starts out. It says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So let's just pick out a few questions about that. There are about three words that I, three or four words that I want to talk about, and then the one thing that I want you to remember uh, when you leave here today. First, some questions. Let's start with the title. How many of you have bought a book because you were intrigued uh, about the title? The title led you to purchase the book. Uh, What is with this title, Acts? Some of your uh, Bibles have a little addendum on after Acts. What does it say? Acts of the Apostles. Yes. Now, this was a very normal thing for ancient writers to, to use in the titles of their books, the Acts of. There were lots of books that employed this. There were the Acts of Pompeii, the Acts of Divi- the Divine Augustus. There were the Acts of Hercules. You've heard of him, Right. There were the Acts of Alexander, there were the Acts of Dionysius, and in all of these books, these were Greek and Roman heroes of the day, and these books recounted the valiant deeds of these outstanding people, and that was very much uh, something that ancient history, uh, history writers liked to use. And so in this book, Luke is going to portray the Acts right? He's going to give us scenes or the doings or the deeds or the acts uh, from this early group of Jesus followers that communicate clearly to us what the book will be about. And so the acts of who? The title says acts of the apostles. But that's, that's really kind of misleading as you, if you've read ahead, you know that there are basically two guys that take up most of the ink in the book of Acts. There's Peter and there's Paul. And Paul is not really an original apostle. He's kind of added on. And even if we add some other apostles in there, even if we talk about John and Philip, uh, maybe Stephen, although he's not technically an apostle, uh, it's still not a very good representation of the actual apostles. It's very incomplete. It's missing untold acts. And so maybe it should be the certain acts of the certain apostles, right? Um, so let's retitle it a little bit, and as we go through, uh, instead of Acts of the Apostles, I need you to, to retitle it Acts of the Holy Spirit, because it is the Holy Spirit who will be the main character on every page as you turn and as you read in the book of Acts. Every story is being driven 
by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, Spirit is written about 70 times in 28 chapters. That's more than any other book in the New Testament by more than double. And the Holy Spirit is the hero that we're writing about here. And so let's retitle the book, The Acts of Our Hero, the Holy Spirit. That would be a perfect retitling because he drives everything that happens in the book. And then we move on from the title and we read the first couple of words. In my former book. Whose former book and who are we talking about? If we're just coming into this fresh, we need to answer those questions. And we come to find out that there's this guy, Luke, And Luke, what do we know about Luke? We know that he's a doctor from Colossians 4. We know that he's a companion of Paul. Uh, He's with Paul when he writes Colossians and Philemon and 2 Timothy. He's with Paul when Paul is in prison in Rome. And so, okay, here's this guy, Luke. But how do we know that he's the my in my former book? How do we know Luke wrote Acts? Well, we know from piecing together several things. We know because of the we passages in Acts there in chapter 16, the author shifts from talking about they did this and they did this to we did this. And so the author has to be a companion of Paul. And as we look at, around at the rest of the New Testament, we get the, the, the idea that this group of traveling companions that were with Paul was pretty small. We understand that whoever wrote Acts is very educated. He's a second-generation Christian. In other words, he needs to interview eyewitnesses, and he uses a lot of eyewitness accounts as he writes. And uh, there's a very definite way that he, whoever writes this book writes about Gentiles. And it leads us to believe that maybe the writer is a Gentile himself, the way he writes about the Gentile inclusion in this new group called Christians. And so we have to ask ourselves, of all of Paul's companions, who were the Gentiles? How many were educated? How many of them would have been uh, doctors and used medical terminology in their writing, which uh, absolutely happens in the book of Acts? How many were in a position to investigate the eyewitnesses uh, by process of elimination? Then we come down to the author of Acts must undeniably be Luke. And history agrees with that. Um, The early church fathers will all agree. And as a matter of fact, uh, disputes about the authorship of Luke don't happen until the 18th century. And that's kind of late in the game, right? Would you agree? Now, all of you have glazed over eyes at this point. Um, And I want to think that it's not because of my preaching, but it's because of all the carbs that you had at Christmas time. But I get it, right? That's very academic. Why are, we, why are we answering all of these questions? We have one more to answer. Why did Luke write? Why did he write this book? He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. What's the former book? Well, if we go back to the Gospel of Luke, we, we see that the first three verses there are addressed to this same Theophilus. And it is the Luke, uh, Luke the writer of Luke's Gospel, who writes an account of Jesus' life and gives it to this guy, Theophilus, so that he would be filled with evidence about Jesus. All of the things that you've been taught about Jesus are true, and here's what really happened, and here's why you can believe what you have been taught, O Theophilus. And so the Gospel of Luke is about Jesus, and the book of Acts is about the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of Luke is about getting from the manger to the cross. 
and the book of Acts is going to be about getting from the resurrection and the ascension and thereafter. And Acts will be the sequel to Luke. So, why, why all these questions? Why this academic? Why, I mean, I'm still, uh, because when you walk out of here today, everywhere you go, you will be surrounded by people who do not believe that the Bible is true. They do not believe that the Bible has a logical support system to it. They do not believe that there is any credibility about the Bible whatsoever, that there's any consistency to it. What they believe about the Bible is that it is no different than a story that they would read to their children at night. And unless we, who go out among these people, have an answer for that, they, they will never change their minds. And so, what I've given you just in a few short minutes, and why those things are important is because, in a very small way, that can give somebody an answer. Oh, there, there really is a consistency to these books? There is really some history behind them? There really is a reason why we think this person wrote it and there are logical reasons behind that? Maybe somebody will say, maybe I should read that. Maybe I should start paying attention to it if it's really history, if it really did happen. And so, Luke says, in my first book, Former Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. These two books that Luke writes are all about Jesus, what he began to do and to teach, and what he continues to do and to teach through the main character of Acts, who is the Holy Spirit. Some of you are paying attention. Very good. The Acts of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is prevalent in Luke, and Jesus will continue to teach and to do things through the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Okay? Remember that. Now, let me take just a little detour that will be extremely helpful to you, and I want to point out a few words about um, this text. First, I need you to understand where normal people are in their uh, journey and um, in their thoughts about religion and Christianity specifically. When you go out and you're among people, here's uh, usually what you will get, okay? You'll get, hey, hey, I get it. I get the God thing. There's no, no reason to rehash this story. I know, I know it, okay? God loves us. Jesus is his son. Jesus came to earth, died on a cross to forgive us, and now if we go to God, he will forgive us because of what Jesus has done, and now we're supposed to forgive others, and we're supposed to love a lot, and we're supposed to pray a lot, and we're supposed to read the Bible a lot, and we're supposed to go to church and do good things. Got it. If we press a little into that and go deeper and dig a little more, we might get something like this, which is also very prevalent. Oh, Christianity. Oh, that's great. That's great. It's a great model of love and forgiveness. I mean, the cross and Jesus going to the cross and dying for somebody else. I mean, how can you not 
hold that up as something, uh, an example to follow in your own life. I mean, it is wonderful. But at the end of the day, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, we're all good people. And I can't imagine that God, who loves us all, wouldn't accept us. And as long as we're doing, you know, enough good that the scale kind of tips in our way, then I just, I, I just can't believe that, you know, we need anything else. All good people can come to God. Jesus is a great story. It's good for lots of people. But in the end, I think everybody's going to make it. That's normal. That's what most people think. And that's why Christianity is dying in our churches. And it's why Christianity is dying in our institutions. It's why people are showing up to public schools. Willie and I were talking about this, this even this morning. It's why he has students showing up to his public school who do not know Christmas hymns. They don't know the songs. They don't know what child is this. Because they don't know the story. Because after all, we don't need Jesus. If we're all just good people and God will love us, we don't need Jesus. What does Luke write? He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Who in that line is doing the teaching and the doing? Jesus. There it is. Christianity is not about what we do. It's not about being good. It's at first not about anything you do at all. Christianity, Luke writes, is about what Jesus did. I wrote to you about what Jesus began to do and to teach. And then there are three words that are very important. What was his doing? First, his suffering. He suffered for us. After his suffering, Luke writes, what does that mean? That's easy to skip over, but it's monumental. Why did Jesus have to suffer? Here's the answer, because there's always something left over when we sin. We see this in the Old Testament. People did wrong things, and it was never enough for them to come and say, God, I know I did something wrong, I'm sorry. That was never enough. Why? Because there's something, there's still something left over. There's something that just needs paid for. And so God institutes this whole sacrificial system where in addition to saying, I'm sorry, that isn't enough. Now I have to bring a lamb and sacrifice it on the altar, and that will make payment. The blood of that lamb will make payment for my sin for a while. And then I'll sin again. And it's not enough to say, I'm sorry then. I have to come with a sacrifice. We have this same idea even today. Don't, don't be fooled and think that that's an ancient idea. That exists today. Let me put it in this, in this way to you. Let's say that a couple days ago you wake up on Christmas morning and you go down and under the tree all your gifts are gone. Somebody has broken in during the night and they have stolen all of your Christmas gifts. Well, you call the police, right? And the police come and by chance they are able, because of the great policemen we have here in Fort Scott, they are able to track down the thief, Okay? And uh, you go through all of the process and charging and, you know, and weeks later there's a trial and the thief stands before the judge and he says, 
judge, I know I stole those gifts. I'm really sorry about it. And the judge says, good enough for me. You're free to go. How would that play? No, 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 no. No, we want some payment, right? What if the gifts were actually given back to you? If they were found in his garage or something and and he actually gave them back and nothing had happened to the gifts, would that even be enough? No, because you were violated. You came into my space when you weren't supposed to. There's something there still. Even when somebody says they're sorry, even when somebody makes some restitution, there's something there still that demands payment. Judges know this instinctively. There's an interesting study that was done uh, by psychologists, um, and it had to do with judges. And the New York Times wrote an article about this. And so what these psychologists did was they went to judges and they said, when you have a, a guilty person in your court and you're back deciding on the sentence and what the sentence should be, before you decide what the sentence should be, what we want you to do, we're going to conduct a little experiment, what we want you to do is to think about your own death. That's all. That's kind of weird, right? We want you to think about your own mortality, the fact that you're going to die, and then we want you to decide what the sentence is going to be. And without exception, the tendency of the judges, after they had considered their own mortality, their own death, they went back into the courtroom and one after another, after another, after another, issued harsher sentences than they would have otherwise. Why is that? It's because we understand instinctively that there's something left. There's something that has to be paid for. And when I get to the end of my life, I want to look back and say, I made all the right judgments because I'm going to have to answer to an ultimate judge and I want to answer correctly. We understand that there has to be suffering involved when somebody does something wrong. Now, if we in our society would fire a lenient judge who says, hey, no problem, just, yeah, you're good, just say you're sorry and you're good. If we would get rid of a human judge that did that, then how can we in the same breath expect God to be that way? That's what our culture thinks. Sin demands payment on a cosmic scale. And in this little word, suffer, we get a glimpse of what Jesus did for us. God gave the verdict. He demands a payment. Sin must be paid for. And Jesus becomes the sacrificial lamb of God, shedding his blood on our behalf. He is the perfect lamb, and he satisfies the payment for sin. That's what he did for us. He suffered. Second, he resurrected he resurrected, he suffered, suffered implies that he died and he did die. And we, Luke writes about that he was shut up in a tomb for three days, but then all of a sudden that tomb was opened and he walked out of it. And he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to his best friends, his disciples, And for a period of about 40 days, he convinced them over and over and over and over and over again 
that he was alive. Why did he need to convince them that he was alive? Because they couldn't believe what they saw. Their worldview was not expecting anybody to rise from the grave. When he went into the grave, it was done. And so when he showed back up again, it was such a shock, such a surprise that he had to convince them over and over and over and over. And we can have an interesting discussion about that, about why did he need to convince them over and over and over and over. But here's the better discussion. Why does he need to convince them at all? As a matter, in, in fact, I mean, if we go with our culture's teaching that all we need is the teaching of Jesus and if we're just good enough and, you know, uh, if we follow him as our example, then God will accept us. If we follow that line of thought, we don't need a resurrection. All we need is Jesus' teaching. Maybe that's why he works so hard to convince them that he is resurrected because without the resurrection... You don't have salvation. You can't get there on your own. You need a resurrected Savior. It all goes back to the resurrection. Here's one more word, ascended. Luke says he was taken up. He was taken up. He hasn't just died and resurrected uh, and appeared to his uh, friends, but he's also ascended. He's taken up, and we learn in other passages that he's sitting at the right hand of God himself. And by the way, it's fitting that both his beginning, Jesus' beginning in the manger, right, and his ending are witnessed by people. Name me any other religious leader in the history of the world that that's been the case, where his birth has been witnessed and his ascension, his very end has been witnessed. And so what's with this ascension stuff? The word is just taken up. I need you to think Elijah, if you're familiar with that story. Um, In John chapter 16, Kevin covered this a few months ago as he was going through his um, series on the Spirit. And Jesus says in that chapter, I have to go up, I have to ascend, I have to leave the world so that the Spirit can come to you. And the ascension doesn't mean that Jesus isn't here. It doesn't mean that he's no longer present, but it means the opposite, that he's absolutely here, but in a greater way way. He's here all over because he has the Spirit. When he had just one body, he only had a couple hands to heal with. He only had a couple feet to go with. He only had one heart to show compassion with. But because he sent us the Spirit and the Spirit lives in every one of us, now there are millions of bodies, there are millions of hands, there are millions of feet, there are millions of hearts so that we can show compassion and heal the world because of the Spirit working through us. The other essential word in this text is one that I've already already read, but I've kind of skipped over. He says, I wrote about all the things Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. Began. Began. Let me restate this, that these two books, Luke and Acts, are all about Jesus, what he began to do and teach, and then what he continues to do and teach through the main character of the book of Acts, who is the Holy Spirit. Yes. 
all of this stuff that Jesus did, all of the doings, the suffering, the resurrection, uh, the resurrecting, the appearing, the ascending, all of that was what he began to do. That's a wonderful little word for us. It's what he began to do. Luke is telling us something. He's telling us that Jesus is not done. That's just the beginning. Every other religious leader in the history of the world had only one chance to do all of the things that they would ever do, to teach all the things that they would ever teach, to do all the good works that they would ever do, to say all the words that they would ever say, to go all the places that they would ever play, that they would ever go. And then they died and their chance is done. They're done. Not Jesus. Jesus did all of those things while he was alive. And then after he died, he lives again and he continues to go and to teach and to do and to heal. Jesus has only just begun. He is not finished. And Acts is the whole accounting of what is going to continue. Luke is about what Jesus began to do. Acts is about what Jesus continues to do through his Holy Spirit. And as we go through the book, we'll get a lot of progress reports about how this doing is going and how the mission is going, and how far this message of Jesus is expanding. Progress report number one is in chapter two, and it just says the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved, and that's after 3,000 joined the church on the first day. The progress report number two is in Acts chapter six. Number three is in Acts chapter nine. In all of these places, it says that the gospel continued to spread all over the place. Progress report number four is in Acts chapter 12, and then Acts chapter 16, and then 29. And then the very end of the book in Acts chapter 28, Paul is welcoming all who come, come to see him in prison. And boldly and without hindrance, he preaches the kingdom of God and teaches about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Acts chapter 29, we have another progress report. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. There is no Acts chapter 29. It's not there. And the, the book ends very abruptly. And we're in, this, we're in the middle of this really awesome story about Paul and about him being on trial because of the gospel and him appealing his trial all the way to Caesar, the ruler of the known world. And then it ends. And we never get answers to those questions. What happened to Paul? Did he get his trial before Caesar? Did he actually get to talk to Caesar himself? We don't ever get that answer. Why? Because the book's not about Paul. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit. And the point is that the Holy Spirit never stops. Whether it's in Paul, whether it's in Peter, whether it's in some of the other apostles, whether it's in you today, the Holy Spirit never stops. The gospel never stops because it can't be stopped. G. Campbell Morgan was in Italy, and he's an old British preacher, and he tells a story of how he was at a cemetery, and he came across a huge gravestone. He said it was just an enormous marble slab. And he noticed something about this that was pretty evident. He said, 
it had taken years, but evidently, when this person was put in there and buried, there was an acorn or something or a seed that had fallen in there as well. And a tree had begun to grow up in the middle of that marble slab. He said, very, very slowly, it grew and it grew. And eventually this marble slab was split into two parts. And now, he said, there's this massive tree coming up. That's the gospel. The gospel can't be stopped. It's like Luke at the end of his book is saying, throw it all at us. Whatever you've got, throw it all at us. The world, the flesh, throw some demons at us. They're in the book of Acts. Throw some opponents of the gospel at us. They're all over the book of Acts. Throw some gods and goddesses at us. Throw some shipwrecks. Throw some earthquakes in there. How about some imprisonments, some beheadings, some executions? Throw it all at us. Throw it all at the gospel. You can kill us. You can imprison us. But you'll never kill or imprison the gospel because it's not about us. It's about the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit continues to work today through you and through me. And he continues to write the story of the gospel and how it's spreading. A lot of people like to refer to that as Acts chapter 29. There is an Acts chapter 29. And it's about you. And it's about me. What a great day heaven will be to get up there and to, to read Acts chapter 29. What did happen to Paul? What happened to Peter? What happened to the other apostles? What happened to you? What happened to me? As the Holy Spirit used us to expand the kingdom that never stops. So as you read the book of Acts, the question is, what is the Holy Spirit going to do today? And that's a a question that's answered on every page. And that's the same question for us. What will the Holy Spirit do today? What will I allow Him to do in my life and through my life in order to expand the kingdom that is unstoppable. Not because of what I do, but because of what Jesus began to do and continues to do through us. That's your challenge today. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to continue this work that was begun by Jesus And it is continued by His Holy Spirit. And we are merely players in the game. But we have to be willing. We have to be submissive. And we have to take action. So, Father, wherever the Holy Spirit leads us today, when we ask ourselves, what will the Spirit do today? May our answer be, whatever it is, Would we say yes? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.